Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Across the series, we chat with guests about all things emerging technology, what innovation means to them, and how organizations can ride the wave as technology continues to disrupt the way we work. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats with Dutch Schwartz, who is Global Head for Security and Strategic Industries for Amazon Web Services. Dutch is an experienced cybersecurity professional, a boardroom certified qualified technology executive who works with some of the world's leading CISOs, advising on cloud security, security culture, and leadership. Dutch holds a Master's of Business Administration in Global Management and was a Strategy and Planning Officer in the US Army. He combines his formal training and his practical experience in cybersecurity to develop cloud security strategies for customers of Amazon Web Services. Got Dutch Schultz with me from AWS. Dutch, pleased to have you on the show. Yeah, pleased to be here. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, so we've got quite a lot of interesting content to run through today. For those people who are familiar with the ASM Connected podcast, one of the things that we try and cover a little bit is emerging tech, innovation. This time we're looking at cloud security, something, um, a topic we've not covered this time. We've covered security from an academic's point of view. We've covered security from a number of different things, but cloud security we've not touched on. We're also going to touch into the, I suppose, security culture as well, because I, I think that that's really, really important. And I'm sure Dutch will expand on how important that is throughout our conversation. And obviously cloud technologies, which is, I hope, is your area of expertise. It certainly isn't mine, so I'm in good hands today, I believe. So just, I suppose, out of interest, I always like to prepare quite early for these conversations. And I was thinking at the weekend and I had a bit of downtime, which is quite rare when you've got a busy family. And I was on chat GPT playing around. And I know this isn't for the security guys. You know, AI is is very much um, probably um, everyone's an AI specialist these days, as, as you probably noticed. But I was having to play around with it. And I thought, actually... You know, why don't I ask ChatGPT what would be a good question to ask a guest on the podcast? So I put in there, you know, what what is a great question to ask a cybersecurity expert? And this is what it came up with. And I'd be really interested to gather your thoughts on this. So again, this is ChatGPT. And the question was, what are the key security considerations that organizations should take when migrating their data and applications to the cloud? And how can they ensure the security of their data in the cloud environment? Now, that's probably quite generic because I think that's where ChatGPT goes. And then you obviously engage with it further. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've, I've played around a little bit as well, right? I think we all have. It's it's really interesting. And I at least the handful of times I've put my hands on the keyboard and asked it questions, when you ask it straightforward questions like that, it comes up with pretty reasonable either responses or, you know, or, or answers uh, or further questions, depending on how you word it. I think it tends to get more interesting when you ask it more and more specific questions, right? And as you give it context. So I know that a theme that I've seen others using, I think just, again, for fun, is saying, you know, act as if I am a, you know, insert, you know, type of job here. And then you keep asking it questions and say, give me a more unusual answer. Give me something that wouldn't be so obvious, you know, and, and you'll get to sometimes silly, but sometimes really interesting, you know, takes on that. So I, I think that's a great question. And really the question behind that, right? When we talk about digital transformation, which is really the sort of the movement we're in here, right? And cloud Again, I say cloud, like in the big term, you know, uh, that's one of the technologies, right, that is really driving or helping enable digital transformation. 
And so when we think about cloud solutions in general, it's important to understand why are you moving this thing to the cloud? That's really kind of the underlying question, right? And that will then drive what the security is for that. And in other words, a lot of times a movement towards a cloud solution may be done at the board level or an executive level and not necessarily initiated, if you will, by the chief security officer, chief information security officer, depending on the title. And so that's the first question. Um, This is not vendor specific, but that would be the first question I have just about the transformation. What is it? Why are you moving either this workload, this piece of data, this web application, whatever the thing is, why are you moving it to the cloud and what do you hope to get from that, right? Because then you have a more of a business discussion around innovation, flexibility, speed, right? So then you have to go into the, um, it's easy for anybody who's a technologist to get right down into the tech, right? Hands on keyboard and zeros and ones. And I've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't really matter of what domain I've been in networking and data and different areas. And, and it always happens because is your passion, right? And so you can get tactical really fast, right? Which may be fun to talk about. But um, and when you're talking with the board and executives, what you really want to come back to, if you will, is, you know, what are we trying to gain from this, right? Is it speed? Is it flexibility? Is it scale? Is it innovation? And then that will drive how you think about, well, now how do I secure that? Like with that as the uh, the kind of direction that we're headed. So if I, if I was talking to ChatGPT Live, that would be my uh, my answer. Brilliant. I must admit, I did play around with the answers and, and got some up. And I definitely prefer your answer to all my got <laughs> Well, I, I, guess, I guess I passed for the day. So passing marks. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, um, you know, some of the things that you mentioned there, you know, is the, I suppose the CISO and, you know, how that fits in with the board. And I've seen a lot of press and media talking about, you know, how important it is and, and do they have a seat at the board? But I feel that the role of the CISO is changing. And traditionally, I think it was seen as a cost center, you know, and perhaps some, I suppose, do you think attitudes have changed on exec boards towards that role? Yeah. And again, I want to make some broad brushstrokes, right? So the UK and the US are fairly similar, right? In terms of stakeholder, stakeholder, shareholder, sort of how we think about the role of a board. But to be fair, if you have other listeners, um, other areas of the world, that, that relationship is a bit different, right? So there would be a slightly different answer if we were answering this for somewhere in, in a different country. But I'll stick with sort of the UK and the US because it's pretty commensurate. And yes, certainly, uh, well, let me step back. So let me take kind of the tactical piece, the cost center question, right? So I don't know uh, the UK accounting well enough, but certainly in the US and GAP, right, the, which just came out of the early 2000s, when we think about accounting principles, cost accounting is actually, you could run your cost accounting separately than I do as if we were two startup, you know, companies with one person. Um, it's just a notion, right, of how do we want to sort of internally designate our costs and our revenue, right? It's not actually something that's reported in any of the three financial statements that you're required to publish. And so I just throw that up because we sort of uh, think, well, how do you do this in cost accounting? It can really differ, right? How you do, how do you decide to reflect those? So, so just a little note there for those who have a finance background. Having said that, it's certainly still a cost center the way that most people think about cost accounting, but we're really kind of talking about the philosophy of it, right? And the philosophy is that security such as it was 20 years ago or even 15 years ago was typically under IT, right? Which is obvious and it makes sense. But there wasn't a separate department initially. So usually what happens, certainly in the U.S., is that there was an audit or some kind of security event happening. And they're like, oh, it says we have to have a leader, 
you know, and Ian raised, you know, his or, you know, her, her hands. Oh, I guess I'm the most senior person. I'll take that on. Another way was um, somebody who was really interested in security and often, again, if we dial the clock back, maybe they came from a, a background of, you know, playing around in security as a, you know, as a teenager or even into to university. And they may have said, oh, yeah, I guess I'm really interested. I'm going to take that on. In other words, there wasn't a lot of formal paths. There are today, but there weren't 15 or 20 years ago. So those CISOs today almost always grew up hands on keyboard, right? As a practitioner, tons of value out of that, right? Because you can really empathize. So if you and I are working with another employee, it'd be like, oh my gosh, Tina, I know exactly what it's like when you're stuck on ABC thing, right? There's a lot of empathy that you get from having done the task, but the, the responsibilities or at least the scope of what a traditional CISO, again, at enterprise scale. I mean, if we were a three-person company, that would be totally different, right? But let's just say an enterprise class company, that role has really changed. And I would even say with my own CISOs at companies that I was at four or five years ago, it was still a bit of a hot topic of, well, Ian's a technical CISO, Dutch is more of a business CISO. That was kind of a common language. At one point, there were seven different archetypes, which is way too many archetypes, in my opinion. But there was a sort of discussion around what type of CISO are you? And even then, I thought that was a little bit limiting. It's sort of like, well, here, let me put, you know, kind of a box around what type of CISO you are. And, and I think always it was a matter of well, what's the problem we're trying to address? And you have to sort of be able to flow between those different types. Having said all that, the, the pandemic accelerated digital transformation for most companies, right? We could argue that it's probably one of the world's largest social experiments, unintended, unfortunate, and really frustrating. Having said that, what it did on average is that it condensed that digital transformation cycle because suddenly massive amount of people were remote work or some kind of hybrid or work from home kind of scenario that they hadn't been planning on doing, or if they had, it was a three or four year cycle and it suddenly happened, right? And to some degree that shone a light on the importance of security and really more basically sort of digital uh, in general, right? How integral that is to most businesses. I don't want to say all, but most businesses today. So let's say that you and I started a company tomorrow and we love motorcycles and we decided to make the next cool, you know, niche motorcycle in the UK. Still a lot of our, uh, our intellectual property and the way that we transact that business is that ends up being digital. So even if we didn't think of ourselves as a software company, there's probably a lot of value in that software as we build out those processes. And so you have to think about that differently. We're used to sort of having a physical thing. You know, it's really easy to sort of track that and what's the value of that thing. It's a little bit more nuanced when you start talking about, well, what's the value of our data, right? What's the value of the digital, not only the, the risk, right? Because we can go through lots of different exercises and quantification and try to gauge that. And we can argue about it. It's a fun topic. But also, what's the value? By that, I mean, what does it enable you to do? That's a bit of a different conversation, right? So it's a bit more, let me take something simple and concrete, an ERP system. And so you're the vice president of the Nordics and you want to implement the system. Well, if I'm perhaps, your, let's say I'm your director of security for the Nordics, I might say, well, it's not just the risk of data, something happening to our data, but this is enabling you to do the business, whatever you know that business is. And that's a bit of a different part of the equation. Right now we're talking about, mm, I'm actually helping generate revenue, not just risk mitigation and protecting. That's, that's kind of table stakes, as we would say here. But what am I enabling you to do? And that's kind of a newer conversation. And that changes then the kind of the tone and the timber, you know, as a CISO with your peers, 
you know, the CMO, the CFO, you know, the various heads of departments, as well as the board. And that truly changes that uh, conversation. So does that resonate with you, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. And I find that fascinating the way that evolution of that role has changed. And you're quite right, probably even five, 10 years ago, your CISO was probably highly technical, uh, probably architect level, and probably didn't have the best business acumen out there in terms of a greater thing. Whereas you've got to bring all those together and probably in some way, probably even less technical, but with a very strong technical team around them. And I've spoken to a lot of people who are very good in that role. And what they are very good at is articulating the technical bit back to the board and stressing the importance. And I think you hit that nail on the head there with that. And I think that's the key to move it forward because you can go in and quote all the acronyms on the planet. And if the board aren't technical, you're wasting your breath, basically. Yeah. And you mentioned your, your family. So I have six kids, right? And so I was prepping for a conference, I guess a year ago, maybe less than a year ago. And the topic was zero trust. And my youngest daughter is 12. And she said, hey, what exactly is zero trust? If you've never tried to explain zero trust to a 12-year-old, I would encourage you to do it because I will say for a good 10 minutes, I got nowhere. <laughs> That's all on me, not on her, right? And I was, wow, this is, I'm, this is not landing. I mean, if I can't explain this to her in a way that makes sense to a very bright 12-year-old, then I have a problem. But I mean, again, this is sort of the thing when you're soaking in a thing, whether it's you know, music or tech or whatever, and you're so used to it, you forget how to step back and talk about it in really simple terms. And I want to go back to your point about the CISOs being technical. There's still today many, many CISOs are extremely technical or certainly have that as a domain expertise. I, I think that it, when I have conversations and we sort of whiteboard and talk about where that role is, and it, it varies, right? Depending on your own corporate culture and and maybe you're, going, you're at a startup or you're going through a period of, of acquisition, that's very different than, you know, kind of business as normal. So, so that also changes. But I find that binary choices aren't always very helpful, right? So technical or business, right? That feels very binary. What tends to be more useful when you're thinking is it's a rheostat. Right on this topic, I need to lean in, um, and let's say that um, I might need to brush up on something, right, or dive deep with two or three of my people and say, mm, "Gosh, I haven't really read a lot about, you know, insert new thing here lately. Bring me up to speed on that. You know, let's brush up on that. Let's let's talk through kind of what's happening in that space. AI as an example, right, potentially of one of those. And other times, I have to be lean into the business side, right, and I should be talking to my finance CFO if you have a CFO, but you're certainly your finance and accounting folks outside of those quarterly meetings that you have to understand, hey, how do we think about the business and how do you communicate? So I think it's both, and where you are on that spectrum might vary topic by topic and day by day. So I think really my message anyway is it's not just technical. That's that one I would feel fairly comfortable with. There's caveats. And if you're at a security technology company, yeah, you better be pretty technical. If it's a small company, of course, because you have to kind of by definition be more involved. But as a general statement, you need to have both of those. And it's a skill. It's an acumen, just like anything else that we continue to develop, right? To be able to say, as a CISO, I should be able to articulate, how does our company make money? How do we, what are our margins, right? How do we compete in the marketplace? What do our customers care about? whether it's customers internal or customer, customer, you know, sort of facing. So those are the things that other roles, because they're candidly older roles, would be more comfortable with. So, so CISOs, if you're an aspirational CISO, that's something that you should consider as you hit that manager, senior manager, director level is, gosh, you should probably start having a cohort of peers, right? In HR, legal, 
operations, et cetera. And that's a kind of an easy, no threat way to start to learn about their areas, right? So that as you sort of continue to move on together, you can collaborate. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting bit there, and I'll pick up on that. You mentioned zero trust, and it's probably one of the most widely used terms in security at the moment. And I think some people are still trying to get their heads around what it actually means. For me, I think it's probably used as much as you're on mute and a few other <laughs> uh, terms out there that are widely used in the IT sector. But where, where I'm going with this is, and I've read a few reports recently to sort of bring myself up to speed. And according to Gartner in their Predicts 2023 report, over 60% of organizations will Will embrace zero trust as a starting place for security by 2025. More than half will fail to realize those benefits. What do you think will be the reason for the high failure rate of realizing those benefits? So let's there's a couple of pieces to unpack there, right? So let's talk about what we mean, right? Kind of to your to your point. So we have to kind of ground ourselves on what are we saying the definition is of zero trust. So I would lean towards John Kinderbag's definition because he's the originator of zero trust. So I think that's at least a starting point, right? So I'm just sort of paraphrasing here, right? But I, uh, John would say that zero trust is a strategy. So that's the first thing to highlight. It's a strategy, right? It's an approach, right? How are we going to do a thing, right? With, with the goal of stopping or, of course, reducing, mitigating, right, uh, negative, you know, events happening uh, to you. And it starts with undoing, if you will, or rethinking the digital trust relationships that you have inside systems. So digital systems today sort of probably unintentionally inherited this concept of that there was a trust boundary, right? And everything inside of our company, the, you know, the 20 of us is, is trusted and safe and everything out there is, right? So it's that old castle moat mentality, right? That's certainly, I think most people say, has outlived its utility because it's not really an accurate reflection for a variety of technical reasons, but also for social reasons, right? And so if you think of zero trust, first and foremost, as a strategy, that's kind of the first thing if I'm chatting with folks, if you, it's not a particular, a single product. It's not even a collection of a, a handful of products. It's a strategy. So we're back to the whiteboard, right? So we would go to the whiteboard and start talking about well, where are we today? And again, what are we trying to achieve? And then how do we start to re-architect, rethink? We probably have trust relationships that we are just so used to not even looking at, right? And so we need to rethink that, right? So there just shouldn't be a construct of, I trust you because you're an employee, or not an employee. And again, it's not about sort of picking up. It's just that that idea wasn't very helpful, right? So it's, I should really architect this differently. So that's the first thing I would say is it's a process, right? When you're talking about strategy and thinking about your architecture, even if we embraced it, to use Gartner's terminology, I might embrace that philosophically. It may take me some period of years, right? To really start to go through that journey, right? Because that's a journey, right? And again, we can pick different parts of that. I think that we would all generally agree are components of that, right? So you have to look at the networking aspect of it. You need to look at the, how do I think about multi-factor authentication? How do I, if you will, I don't want to say interrogate, but you know what I mean? In the sense of like, how do I recognize who you are, what access you're looking for, what data that implies behind that. So there's components that are consistent, but you and I could be on a zero trust journey and it could look quite different, you know, in year one and year two. So I don't know what that rate of failure is relative to like sort of a past rate of failure. So I don't actually know if that's really high or really low. That doesn't surprise me in that kind of time window. So I think a lot of 
uh, folks, again, if we had a greenfield opportunity, we, we say that in the, in the States. So meaning like we started a new company tomorrow, right? That would be very different in the same way that you can embrace big data or AI or cloud solutions. If we're a brand new company, you and I go off and we start this motorcycle company, very different conversation. But if you're a 20, 30, 50, 70 year old company with not even tech debt, but just existing process and architecture, that's a very different conversation. This is a, hey, we're on a two, three, five-year journey, and we've decided we want to go down this path of zero trust as an approach, as a strategy. It still may take us quite some time. It's a cultural, you're battling with that cultural element again, aren't you? And yeah, absolutely. It's that cultural shift in security. That's why, yeah, that, that's probably that higher failure rate in those larger organizations because it's like, well, we know, you know, you probably get a lot of businesses, well, yeah, these people have worked with me for 20 years or 10 years or whatever it is. So why do we need to do that? Well, yeah, but you're going to have new people coming into the business. And again, it comes down to the business element of security, doesn't it, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah. And then failure, I understand why they would use that word, right? Uh, but it's a little bit of a lightning rod, right? So failure, again, I'll go back to kids because they're easy to, right? Um, I have some of kids, you know, uh, learning looks a lot like failure, right? I mean, that's what that is, right? I mean, so when I think about you know training and coaching teams in my own personal history, uh, my expectation is there will be failure, right? Again, if we had to kind of somebody who's looking over our shoulder and looking at it, but really you have to frame it as hey, this is an opportunity to learn. Like all of those are just learning opportunities, right? And it's a continuum, right? You know, Simon Sinek would say, you know, being an enterprise business is a an infinite game. The goal of the game is to stay in the game, right? There's really not a winning or losing point of the game, right? I mean, so in that construct, then there's, you're not really failing. Right. Maybe it took longer than you expected. Maybe you learned a whole bunch more than you thought you would learn along the way. Um, but but I don't think framing it sometimes as we passed or failed, unlike uh, you know, taking a test is quite more you know, concrete. But I would just say it's a journey and you have to step back and go, it's a strategy. It's an approach. It's a, how do we think about this? Does it make sense? You know, I, I wouldn't know, you know, for any particular entity if that's the case or not, but you have to ask yourself that and then align back to the culture piece. You have to align everybody to that because to your point, look how intractable passwords have been, right? Passwords were never intended to be obtusely challenging for us as a user, right? It was, again, it was a tool, it was a mechanism that made sense at the time with the technology that was available but then it's very hard. The challenges you have if you're trying to go passwordless, right, aren't really about the technical aspects of being able to do that. There are multiple approaches that would allow you reasonably to do that. It's changing people's behavior. And now we're back to culture, right? So there's many models, but a, a model that I feel comfortable with is Dr. Kerry Perlson and, and Kaman Wong from MIT. And they would say there's sort of three levers or three components that you can think about when you think of culture. And those are values, attitudes, and beliefs, right? And so in that paradigm, uh, beliefs, you know, I'm not going to change yours, you're not going to change mine, but it's just to make sure I understand, right? You know, so beliefs are things that we think to be true right? Values are the things that we think are important to us, right? And the attitudes are sort of the way we approach a thing, right? How do we think about a thing and how do we, when we run into an obstacle, how to respond to that? But values, attitudes, and beliefs are kind of the underpinnings of culture. So as you're starting to build out a culture of security, I like to flip it, right? If you say security culture, what I tend to find is that, oh, that means the security gents, the security team, uh, Tina, who's my security director, she owns it. They own it. Right? When you say security culture, 
just the nature of that wording makes it feel it's, oh, it's, it's contained, right? It's a single thing and somebody owns that, right? If you remember kind of the quality revolution, it was the same thing, right? Remember we had a quality team and you had QC. And then at some point it was like, wait a minute, it's actually, it's everybody's responsibility. Like it's actually just the way that we work here. And again, sometimes if I'm talking with a, a group that understands that very well, perhaps for a software development team, I might use that analogy, right? And kind of map through, hey, look, listen, look, it took decades to go through the quality evolution, right? So a culture of security, what I mean when I say that is it's got to be woven into the culture, the fabric of the overall culture of the company. And that is certainly well beyond a CISO or CSO in of themselves, right? That means she will need to go with her other peers and the board and make sure that's aligned and help win people over and influence them. Hey, what do we want to be as an overall culture? organizational culture? And then how do we make security be a part of that? Because again, if you keep it separate, then it's always going to be your job again, right? And that's not really the win, right? The win is it's less likely that it will be somebody who works directly for you in the security team who makes an overt error. It's much more likely that it's the person who's in legal or finance or logistics who's, that's not their day-to-day job, but there's some aspect of that that we need to coach them and teach them that actually this is part of the, this is a back to, this is the way we work here, right? And, and that's what culture means is, is this is the implicit, this is just how we do things. You know, if everybody understands that, then you get away from, oh, it's the other team's job. It's not my job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recognize that. And having been through that quality revolution, as you call it many years ago, probably uh, 25, 30 years ago. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Been there, done that. And uh, yeah, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from. And, and just, I suppose, moving on slightly from the cultural side of things for a moment. One of the things that we've all seen is a substantial shift to as a service, in particular, things like platform as a service. Does the enterprise need to go beyond traditional security monitoring and management when deploying this type of solution? Yeah, I think that is a key. I mean, we people, other domains hate when security folks say it depends. But, but this is probably, and it depends on your willingness and aptitude and your existing program, right? And, and the skills. And if monitoring and managing said, you know, as a service is integral to what you do, then maybe that is something that you want to then develop those skills, right, internally or plus up your skills, right, of, of your existing staff. If it's not or if you feel like the lift for that is too high, um, then there's a lot of various partners, right, of, of a lot of different flavors, right, who have excellent skills in that in those areas. And so I would think I would go through an exercise in the same way that if we were deciding Am I going to keep this particular piece of, let's say, pick on finance again, right? You know, of finance, are we going to keep this in-house or is it better for us to send it to Sanjay's team or Dan's team or Tina's team who, who do this really, really well? And this is all they do every day, all day long. Both of those make sense. It depends on what this means to your business, right? And so that one's a tough one for me because um, I think it's, and you, again, it's not an all or nothing, right? It's not a binary thing. Maybe some things you do want to maintain, right? And other things you're like, gosh, you know, these systems, maybe you have legacy systems and they're still really integral to what you want to do. And over time, you're trying to, you know, retire those, but they're still very active. And maybe they're um, more arcane. And so that would be harder for you to, to hand over to someone else, right? But maybe there's new things that you're developing um, and you're doing microservices and containers and you've not even, we, you and I haven't even started yet. Maybe that's a more obvious, like, oh, gosh, you know, 
we want to control this part of the intellectual property and the development, but maybe that's not something we want to maintain, you know, and then there are a variety of different, you know, partners who of various flavors who might be better suited for that. Okay. Okay. And I suppose just the other thing that, that I've seen to have come a long way, particularly in the, uh, in the last few years is network detection and response tools. And we've, I think we've moved beyond traditional intrusion detection and are starting to look at patterns and human behavior across networks, which I've read a lot about recently. Are there any particular type of capabilities that we should be looking for this type of solution? And I, I know uh, things like perhaps AI and machine learning could probably play a role there. Yeah. So let me step back and just sort of talk about detection, right, as a construct, right? So I'll just, I don't know the UK Cyber Essentials off the top of my head quite as well, so, but I'll just stick with NIST CSF. So there's five functions, right, in this in the CSF construct, and you can map those, right, to, to everybody else's. But if we look at detect, again, I'm back to, like, where are we as a company in terms of maturity, just our own, you know, are we five years old or are we 50 years old? It's very different. And how are we as a program, right, as a security program personnel? So if you were coming in, if you were coming in new and maybe there was hadn't been a really robust, you know, security program, then in those initial 18 months to two years, I would lean really again, generically speaking, but looking at the stats, I would lean really heavily into detect, right? Because that's the right thing to do. Over time, maybe you want to change, if I'm thinking about making trade-offs in terms of training and personnel and budgeting, I might change that, right? As the program becomes more mature, which is not to say I'm stopping, you know, detect or I'm stopping protect, but it might be that the resiliency piece, that respond recovery, right? I kind of, we can just kind of put those together and say resiliency, that piece is likely more important, right? As you become a mature program and your teams and your processes become more mature. So that would be the first question I have is where are we kind of at a, from a maturity level, both as a company, as well as a security program and personnel. And, um, but to your question around sort of detect technologies. Yeah, absolutely. So you have, you know, a, a cor- again, a, a sort of a cornucopia of, of the acronyms, right? So you have network detection response, you have EDR, you have XDR, right? Trying to to indicate there's beyond those two together. They're all, I think, trying to get at the same issue, which is I'm looking at behavior, right? Which was kind of underpinning your question there, right? So can I look at, can I use heuristics? Can I use AI? Can I use ML? And look at behavioral patterns. And is that more useful sometimes than just sort of blocking things, right? In kind of a, a blunt force way, right? And so, yeah, I would just say generally, I think those are those are things that you should be looking at. Again, smaller medium-sized business might feel a lot different. If you're an existing larger company, very likely you have some kind of technology or technologies that are SIM and SOAR, et cetera, that are very robust and have a lot of history behind them. And then you might, again, you might be selective about which things that you supplement those with, right? So again, a little bit of a depending on kind of again, your age and maturity. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know, I, I've seen a, a little bit of a shift, particularly with, with some organizations and, you know, you, you go pretty much every week these days and there's, there's been uh, some organizations had a, had a breach of some sort. And it's kind of, I think organizations getting to the point, it's going to happen at some point. When it does happen, how quickly can we respond to it? How can we detect it? Where did they come in? Where did they go? And I think that's more, whereas if you'd spoken to someone 10 years ago about security, it's always just stopped them. But I think that that's significantly changed as well. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And I think if I'm back to that, the binary, right? Are we secure? Or are we not secure? Right? That's not a very useful question, right? To a security team or security program. And so I think that we've kind of jumped the shark, we would say here. Yes, we've gotten past that right now. 
And so the goal, of course, is not to have anything negative happen to you, right? And that's a big piece of it. But you also need to build up the capability of, okay, if an unintended consequence, whatever that might be, happens, how to quickly do respond to it? How efficaciously do we respond to that? How do I communicate while it's happening? And how do I communicate when it's done? And then, of course, how do we do that after action review, you know, after the fact to say, okay, is there anything we could have done differently? Right. And that's always an interesting conversation to have if you're doing a tabletop exercise. Right. If I look at uh, Nassim Tlaib's actual definition of black swan, it's not predictable. You couldn't, nobody could have predicted it. Right. And so then to sort of be overwrought and say, how could this have happened to us? Well, that's the definition of it. It's, it's completely unexpected, right? So there you think about that response and resiliency is so critical, right? So, and again, if you're making trade-offs of, of investing both time, personnel, and then systems and tooling beyond that, there will investing in that re- resiliency always pays off. Right. It pays off, right, to do that because even if it's an unintended consequence, like that's why I say it that way, because sometimes it might be just a mistake. You know, somebody does something, a mistake of effort, sometimes that we would call that, right? Uh, where somebody in an internal team just, you know, makes an error. And it's not, you know, uh, you know, kind of that negative impact from the outside, but it, the outcome temporarily is the same thing, right? So it's resiliency, I think, that we find a more useful conversation. So when we're talking with the board or an audit or risk co- committee, as opposed to, are we secure? Are we not secure? Very binary, really tough to answer that question. Kind of doesn't really lend itself to a discussion. More of a, how would we, how is our resiliency? How's our program maturity? How is the people maturity? How are we doing from a cross training standpoint across the folks on our team? What can we do to upskill, you know, the folks on our team, right? Those are the types of questions that I think that lead towards more useful conversations, right? With the rest of the staff. How does that, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I suppose the number of conversations that I have around security, and we work with a number of different security vendors, that definitely ticks the box because, you know, we're seeing a lot of emerging tech companies in the cybersecurity space. Obviously, uh, we see a lot from Israel and from the US in that space. And a lot of them are now not looking at, I suppose, what I would class as preventional, traditional technologies. It is, you've had a breach quite often you don't know about it for months later. Where is your data? Where did it go? And kind of those conversations that people are starting to have and the enterprise is starting to take note of those. And I find that fascinating from that shift from stop them coming in at all costs to now they're in. How can you limit the damage that they do while they're there using things, technologies or strategies like zero trust, but then also coming down to um, the key elements of, right, okay, could I set a little trap for them over here or other kind of uh, detection strategies that we should use. So, uh, so yeah, no, fascinating. And I suppose moving on from that, you know, we work and see that probably cybersecurity is one of the most saturated markets in terms of the number of vendors out there at the moment. No wonder when I think the, uh, I think the last figures that I heard was that the cybersecurity marketplace was going to be worth something like a trillion by 2025, if it's probably not already there by now. And there are hundreds of these security vendors and solutions of the market. When you're looking or engaging with CISOs and security vendors for the first time, is that cultural approach to them as important as the technology that are putting in front of you? Yeah, I think it can be. And what I mean is sometimes um, perhaps because of what the solutions that you already own or have or have, you know, or have maybe even developed on your own, 
you may be looking for just a you know specific, something that solves something a really specific problem, you know that you either can't or you know don't have the expertise to solve, and that might be a, a little bit of a narrower discussion, and it will depend to some degree on your willingness to go down a path with somebody who's maybe a, a more on the startup side of the equation, right? There are pros and cons to that, right? If you work with an early stage vendor, I'll just call it that, an early stage vendor and you're a larger company, one of the advantages may be the ability to really connect with you one-on-one and really explain in a really deep level, you know, what my needs are. And you might be very amenable to that because maybe you, you don't only have, I don't mean only pejoratively, but maybe you're new. So you have 20, 30, 40 customers. And so that's really important. And you can, you can respond and react to that. So there are times when as a CISO, that makes really good sense. Also, if it's an emergent area in general, right? And you're not really sure how to, you know, are we going to make a bet in this area? Do we want to make a bet in this area? That may make sense to reach out to multiple vendors, you know? And one of the ways that CISOs sometimes talk about it here is if we were to go to a large conference, that might be when you walk around that part of the conference floor, that's all the newer companies. And sometimes it's just to get a sense of, hey, what's happening? What's new, you know? Because we all try to stay up on all of the trends, but it's really challenging to do that. And so sometimes it's just nice to hear those trends, you know, and and you hear, oh, tell me again a little bit more about, again, new thing that maybe I just haven't really soaked in and and spent much time in. And it's really useful to do that. So maybe you have unknown unknowns, as we say sometimes, right? You're not really sure, but you feel like there's some changes in the environment. and, And so sometimes it's great to hear that fresh perspective, right, from candidly a smaller or newer company who maybe has a different take on that. So in terms of their culture, I, yeah, I, I think it's important because we're back to do our values align? Do we care about the same kinds of things? Because at some point, if we get into a challenging scenario, that smooths a lot of things over. If we align, you know, kind of on the same things that we care about, if you will, right, in, in the values spectrum, then it's much easier to even have a touchy, tough conversation if we feel like, right, but there's a trust here, right? There's a trust there, then it's still a tough conversation and it's still maybe a tough spot that you're in, but you can kind of work your way through that. But if it's a very transactional relationship, then, you know, it just might be a different conversation, right? That you haven't invested that time. And so, so, so we, we talked about the strategy, so that, and we talked about culture. And I'll just sort of, sort of the third one in that trilogy for me is, is leadership, right? So for since 1999, we've talked about people, process, and technology, right? So Bruce Schneier popularized that, the wonderful Bruce Schneier. By his own admission, he did that because he wanted to focus not just on tech, right? Because that's what he felt like in 1999, the, the focus was. I think those three things, are the sort of the three-legged stool are very valuable. But now you have to kind of, now that the CISO expectations have changed, you have to kind of broaden that, right? So, so leadership, culture, and strategy I would say those are the three things that unlock the other three things, right? So we're back to like, as a CISO at an enterprise company, as we move forward, your business executive first and foremost, who has domain expertise in cybersecurity. Where again, we're sort of just sort of switching that around a little bit, right? Doesn't mean you don't have security expertise. Absolutely, you need to, right? To be able to understand your team and lean on them. But you have to be a business executive, right? First and foremost, and then the strategy, right? How are we going to do these things? Strategy is about trade-offs, right? It's about consciously deciding what we're not going to do and the things that we're going to lean into, right? So again, as you look at a framework or a model, that helps guide you, 
right? So again, if I went back to CSF, it's not because we're ignoring protect and detect. I'm not suggesting that at all, that you ignore it. But again, if you're making conscious choices about, well, where do I lean in? Where do I make more investment? Where do I know I'm going to take some, you know, some level of risk because I've got to focus on other things? That's what strategy really does. It helps your teams and your teams below those teams make all those thousands of choices that happen in a big enterprise day in and day out, right? It helps align those choices, right? So that's that's that piece, right? So the leadership culture and strategy are really critical as we move forward. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, thanks for that. And I suppose this is a bit of an odd one that I kind of, I, I, I thought, and it's a term I'd never come across and it's probably very topical in the current world that we live in. I first heard the term hacktivism recently where countries involved with civil unrest, war, political ideals, employ, I suppose, national hackers to take down third parties, predominantly targeting, I guess, public sector space. And I suspect that this trend's going to increase and we're probably all trying to prepare for it. Gartner, again, I quote those guys because they seem to know what they're talking about. <laughs> Gartner recently reported that public services and federal agencies made up of 18% of threat actors in 2022. And most of these threat actors are motivated by other factors other than financial gain. So they're people obviously looking to probably foreign agencies trying to cause some disruption. My question here and where I'm going with this is that is investment in the security space keeping pace with the level of threat from these often well-funded and determined threats that are out there? Bear in mind, you've got some big wealthy countries behind those threats. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think sort of if I step back, what you're seeing is nation states really take you look at this differently, right? And I think that's kind of the heart of the question, right? Is, is that you you see uh, a variety of, at the country level, a variety of either discussions uh, and or legislation and, or movement, I'll call it, you know, depending on the country, around this area. So I, I think there's a recognition, right, around that this is really an area for investment, to your point, Right. And, and, you know, do we have enough or not enough? I don't know, because I'm not sure that we, we really know how to gauge that accurately today. So this would be one of those we sort of look backwards in time and, and understand. But what I do see is an awareness, right? So if you think back to, let's scope this back down to sort of cybersecurity at a narrow space, it's sort of like creating an awareness program in our own company, right? Awareness around, don't click on that, you know, a phishing awareness campaign. Awareness is the first step. You have to do it. It's absolutely critical, but it's not the end goal. Right? It's the beginning of the dialogue. And so what I, I'm happy to see is that you're seeing awareness at the nation state, you know, uh, that, that community level, that cybersecurity is really integral to overall, not just the economies of the countries, but candidly to uh, what we would sort of consider, you know, the, not the... I don't want to compare it to like water and electricity, but kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point where that's such a, you know, something that we need to have, you know, if our internet was down and our kids are going to school remotely, or if you have children who don't have access to the internet or they don't have laptops, I mean, that's, now we're talking about actually concern for our people, you know, I mean, it's much beyond, you know, sort of, you know, 20, 25 years ago and watching all the movies, which I loved, of course, as well. It's really like coming to a, how do we make sure that our people have access to resources? You know, and I think there's awareness there. I see that awareness, at, you know, at, at a national level. So more power to it. Absolutely. I actually had um, a really interesting conversation, I think, uh, with another guest that I did a recording with. And 
it reminded me, it was um, a chap who uh, spent some time on the Google Red team. And, you know, one, one of the conversation or one of the things that he actually shared was that uh, the level that they expect threat actors to go to. And he said that they'd actually basically created a whole website specifically aimed at one individual that they knew was going to, um, that was into, I think he said that this particular person was into marathon running and cats. And they created a newsletter that was specific around that. And then they created a whole website around marathon running and cats to really hook them in. And then there was one link in there that if that got clicked in, it was basically, yeah, we're, we're uploading this and we've got you. And I was like, wow, that is taking it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, to a whole new level. And yeah, it's quite scary that there are people out there that are willing to go to that level and far beyond that to get that entry. So if you look at that from a, uh, I suppose, a national threat actor and the determination there, and I think always people are more, when they've got a, a purpose behind them as well, um, not you know, obviously financial reward is a purpose, but when it's a passion or it's something they believe in and about their country, they're going to take it to a whole nother level. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's quite scary, that is. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that there are plenty of funds out there in that one trillion figure that I shared with you before <laughs> um, that, are, that are going to keep us all safe, which is great. And finally, something, again, looking into the future, how far into the future this will be, I have no idea. Quantum computing. I obviously understand, you know, that quantum computing can change the world for good, bring a lot of power, things like cancer diagnosis, bring it down into minutes rather than weeks. So it gives us an edge. But that could potentially cause huge chaos in the security sector with the ability to crack probably most of today's encryption that we all use and rely on within minutes. Again, is there investment that you're aware of going into that next level and that next stage of evolution of security? Sure. I, I would make a general statement that luckily, just as the the passion that you have, you know, that we'd sort of put on the negative side of the scale, there's just as much passion on the positive side of the scale. So you have a lot of extremely gifted and talented people who are looking at that problem today. So I would feel comfortable that there are a, a bunch of smart folks at startups and, you know, and enterprise and at the national level who are looking at it. It's a thing that I think is understood, you know, that we know that this is um, like any tool, tools are neutral, you know, sort of by in of themselves, right? And so we have to figure out how do we use them to the best of our capabilities. So yeah, I feel comfortable that there are smart folks out there who are super passionate, who are also looking at the other side of that scale, for sure. Excellent. No, that's reassuring. Great. And just as we kind of look to wrap up, got a couple of quick fire questions that I always ask our guests at the end, just to uh, just to en- en- end it with a bit of fun. And what kind of sort of uh, personal use security wise at home? So are you, and probably with you having lots, lots of kids as well, I probably think I know the answer to this. Guest network at home, or do you have the sort of password for when the kids' friends come around on a post-it note on the fridge that they can just help themselves to? Yeah, no, no, two networks completely separate and firewalled and all the things you would, yeah, all the things you would expect. And I'm a big fan of the basics, whether we're talking about individuals, it's really not that different. Individuals or large groups of people, the basics are still the basics. So if one of my family members should perhaps ask to share a password on some kind of service, then they're not going to get a really fun answer back from me about about that. And uh, I will say emphatically, uh, all six of my children have password managers. 
They all have VPNs. They all have multi-factor on their on their phones or devices. So yeah, I, I think that's the thing that I'll sort of tongue in cheek aside. This is where that awareness education piece comes in, right? So I would love to see that. And there's certainly efforts. I have some friends who've written some books for, you know, that are aimed at kids for cybersecurity, but I love to see more effort in that area because this is where it starts, right? We have to teach them, you know, that this is, again, yeah, this is just how we do, this is how we do things, right? That we would pass our manager, that we use VPNs. It's just how we do things. So, so yep, uh, certainly um, the things you'd expect and yeah, the voice activation and things that are on my children's devices are very different than the ones that are on my devices. Yeah, I must admit, I think my wife thinks I'm a little bit strange that we have you know, multiple networks and the way that I've got the setup at home. But again, you know, yeah, I think my daughter took her laptop into school and she got a new laptop and then they have to do something with it to get her onto the network because they don't like giving them the network key for, for obvious reasons. And the, the tech guys there were like, how do we do this? Because we haven't seen this set up before. And my daughter's like, oh, my dad works in tech. Really sorry, sort of conversation. <laughs> but again, I, I think that that's a positive that she knows that that's how we go about things and it sets her up for, for the future. And my last question in terms of um, is uh, one that I always like to ask, what's your favorite tech gadget? Oh, my favorite tech gadget is two of my kids are... Uh, really into music. So we just recently got a, a soundboard or DJ mixing board, right? With, with, you know, with the two turntables that, that set up. So that was a recent, uh, a recent thing. And so we've been messing about with that, uh, as you might say. So yeah, that's probably my, my uh, most favorite tech gadget right now. Well, it's definitely uh, one we've not had before. So hence why I like asking it, we get lots of different answers and yeah, re really interesting, obviously conscious of your time today. So really, really pleased to have you on the, uh, on the episode and uh, record the episode with you. Thank you very much for taking the time out to chat to us. Really appreciate it. I've learned a lot, which is always good. Every day's a school day, as they say. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time out again and we'll speak to you soon. Take care, Dutch. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with guest Dutch Schwartz. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out the other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.